What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Joyce Yang is the creator of Global Coin Research. In this conversation, we discuss the regulation of crypto in Asia, how China is responding to the interest in Bitcoin, and what US-based teams don't understand about the global aspect of the cryptocurrency markets. I really enjoyed this conversation, and Joyce has unique views on the world. I hope you enjoy it nearly as much as I did. As many of you know, crypto investors store their digital assets on exchanges or in cold storage for long-term safekeeping. However, this strategy doesn't help them grow their investment holdings or build overall wealth. With the new BlockFi interest account, users can now securely store their Bitcoin or Ether at BlockFi and receive 6% annual interest paid monthly in cryptocurrency. 6% is an absurdly high rate. It's the best rate in the industry. I highly suggest you go check out BlockFi.com POMP. Again, that's BlockFi.com POMP to sign up and start earning crypto today. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, I'm here with uh, Joyce. Um, we got a lot to cover very quickly. Uh, maybe let's just start with your background and uh, then we can dig in. Sure. Hey, Pop. Hey, everyone. How's it going? So my name is Joyce Yang. You may or may not have heard of Global Coin Research. We're a paid newsletter, primarily focusing on Asia, crypto, and blockchain. Asia, as you can imagine, is a huge region that has more than 50% of mining activities and 50% of trading volume. And honestly, I think it's more exciting than what's going on in the States right now. So what we try to do is we provide value in two ways for our readers. For one, we provide information on what's going on in Asia. There's lots of news going on. We filter them out for you by either translating the local news or identifying the most important news for you. And the second value we add is actually contextualizing what's going on in Asia. That means through podcasts, in-depth analysis, and conversations with actual important folks from different regions. That includes, you know, congressmen from Taiwan. That includes traders from Singapore. So be sure to check out globalcoinresearch.com for uh, some newsletters and news of what's going on in Asia. So she can't say this, but I'll say it. You're one of the experts on crypto in Asia. Um, and you've got the background that fits it, right? You were born in China, uh, moved to New York when you were like 10. And tell us a little bit about kind of growing up early years in China uh, and then what it was like when you moved to the U.S. Sure, sure. So my family immigrated to the U.S., specifically New York, Queens. If anyone's there from Queens, give me a shout out. <laughs> I went to school in Bronx Science, which is up in the Bronx. <laughs> and went up to Harvard for undergrad. And, you know, I spent half my time in China and I have a huge passion for what's going on in Asia and the most recent developments, you know, internet trends, as well as what's going on there in cryptocurrency. And after Harvard, I spent five years in equity research looking at open source software companies and boring database companies uh, out of the West Coast. 
Um, well, and, let, let's talk about that for a second. So you, growing up in New York, why'd you move to the West Coast? Just job or you always wanted to go there? Or what, what, what drew you there? Definitely the technology companies there. You know, I think I love learning. This is, you know, what Global Coin Research is all about. It's sharing information, sharing what we learn with, uh, you know, with folks who don't may not know about what's going on in certain in-depth areas. And we picked, you know, crypto for this particular platform. But in my past career, I spent time looking at software companies and, you know, the changes in SaaS trends, which were super fascinating. You were were doing equity research at um, Merrill Merrill Lynch, Lynch, right? And a lot of it, you know, we were talking before that uh, open source software, right? Some of these things that have overlap with crypto, but no direct crypto kind of research. Um, Do you think a lot of that helps you today in what you're doing? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think crypto and blockchain is an extension of what current databases cannot do. And it's, you know, I see folks who are essentially entering the space from previously in the uh, software space. Yep. Uh, one person who I really admire, actually, is this guy named Diogo. Um, um, I forget his last name right now. It's okay. Diogo from... Uh, from uh, from this custody solution called Anchorage, uh-huh. and they recently raised about I think over north of fifty million dollars from A16Z and other folks on creating a custody solution. And Diogo Monica, that's his last name. Diogo used to work at Docker, and I followed Docker closely when I was in equity research. And you know, Docker used to really preach this idea of containerization, yep. you know, which really helped speed software development and uh, accelerate, you know, uh, and kind of empower developers with these tools for software development. And uh, and he's now in this crypto space. So I find that super empowering when there's smart people who are entering the space. Well, and that's smart what I want to be. And, the, and there's overlap between the two uh, things, right? Open source right. software, just software in general and, and crypto. Right. Um, he was focusing on security at Docker. And now, you know, she's creating a custody solution for making sure that none of our wallets <laughs> get hacked, exactly. which is super important. So, okay. So you're at uh, Merrill, right? You do the equity research. Then you head over. Uh, you worked at a Chinese bank for a while. Um, and then you uh, eventually start uh, Global Coin Research. Maybe talk a little bit about um, what was the initial thought process or ideas to why to start uh, Global Coin and, and kind of how you got started. Yeah, for sure. So I was working at a Chinese bank and that was actually in um, with an office in New York. And the bank was based out of China, uh, headquartered in Beijing called CICC. If you are local to China, you probably have heard of it. It's the largest investment bank in China. And uh, it's the first investment bank that's formed by Morgan Stanley and China Construction Bank back in the 80s. So when I was working in the bank, I realized a lot of folks in the U.S. don't have an idea of what's going on in Asia and China. And, you know, I was looking at technology companies then, Alibaba and Tencent, and many institutional investors, you know, portfolio managers would try to learn about what's going on with these companies, but they're so massive and large. But yet, there's so much opaqueness because of the culture and the language barrier. Yep. And carrying over to crypto, that's even more the case. And it's increasingly more relevant than anything else because crypto is inherently global. And if we look at the stats here, you know, going back to what I was saying about why I focus on Asia primarily, is because we look at the exchanges, you know, Binance is... You know, it's decentralized, but a lot of the employees are based in Asia. CZ lives in Singapore, and Huobi is based out of China, and OKX is registered in Singapore, or Hong Kong, sorry. 
So that's the top three exchanges. And if you look at mining, of course, you can think of Bitmain, which we also read, heard about the news today um, with all these losses. But, you know, that they're still based in China. And we look at participation in, in these networks. You know, think about EOS. The top 15 super nodes are from China. Yeah. Well, hold on. Before we get into the crypto industry in Asia, yeah. I want to set the scene because a lot of people, right, a lot of people are like me. They're Americans who... Um, are on Twitter, they kind of hear some things about China, they hear about companies from China, Korea, Japan, et cetera, but they don't actually understand the cultural differences or the uh, technology differences. Um, so maybe let's just start with uh, this idea of um, the cashless societies of Asia, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, and talk through a little bit about what that means, how do people actually interact with money in Asia, um, and maybe even get into a little bit around Alipay, WeChat Pay, things like that. Yeah, for sure. So I just read the stat actually that now in China, only 15% of transactions in retail are cash or in fiat. Only 15% of retail transactions are in cash in China. In fiat, yes, in China. And China is really where we see the leading kind of companies and trends in cashless society. And, you know, the leading players there are Alibaba with Alipay and uh, Tencent with WeChat Pay. Mm-hmm. And those folks in aggregate have about, I think, a billion accounts in uh, in China alone. And if you just think about the Chinese people overseas, many of them, including myself, uh, I mean, I'm a U.S. citizen, but I still use WeChat. And whenever I go to China, you know, you cannot hail a taxi without using WeChat or Alipay. Well, what is the user experience, right? So most people here think of um, if they go to pay for something, they're going to take cash out of their pocket or they're going to uh, take a credit card out of their wallet, right? right? And they're going to swipe or, or insert the chip. Right. Uh, and just now it's starting to become a little bit more popular with Apple Pay or something like that. But what is the actual user experience? I go to a store um, that has Alipay, WeChat Pay. I grab you know some clothes, walk up to the register. What do I do and how does that transaction actually occur? So I pull out my phone. I pull out this QR code that identifies with my wallet, my digital wallet. Wallet, and I scan it with this uh, scanning machine that they have. And so they have it's a machine, and I, I, you literally just take your phone and put it up to the scanning machine, right. and it's able to read who I am, right. the wallet. And my wallet, yes, and the code. And it's super easy within a second or two, you know, stalls or even, I mean, you could see on the internet that trends of homeless people looking to accept um Digital cash mm-hmm. uh, with their own QR code hanging on their, you know, on their on their shirt or their 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 neck. So it's very prevalent, and it's probably the easiest way to transact in China. And, and so that is a consumer transacting with a retailer, right? It is the ability to walk peer up. Peer-to-peer as well. When you go peer-to-peer, um, is it similar to like a Venmo experience where I can just type in a number, type in a username, send it, or is do I need to be in proximity to actually scan, or maybe I can do both? You could do both. Okay, so yes. I can do either one. Right, and you could send me your QR code or your name or your username, and I will send you my money in an instant. Got it. Yeah. And, and so how do the banks look at this stuff today? Do they feel threatened by the technology companies kind of entering into the payment space? Are they trying to work together? How, just what's that landscape look like? So I think the banks definitely work with these technology companies. You know, if you think about the leading conglomerates in China in technology, it's Alibaba and Tencent. And they all have their own financial arm 
mm-hmm. where they want to work closely with the banks to accelerate this movement of cashless um, uh, adoption. And you know, I think it's fascinating because uh, when I we wrote a post on. Tether back in the day when there was so much backlash about Tether, Tether not having enough reserves to back up its uh, its coin. Uh, we uh, we also identify this trend in in WeChat where you know back in ten years ago or twenty years ago when WeChat first started and WeChat payments started mm-hmm. started happening, there was no reserves backing those WeChat digital money. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the yuan was really just you know uh, an IOU, but you know there was no actual money being. Uh, transacted, and soon, ten years later, now we're seeing actually the government regulating and requiring these reserves to be set up to make sure that every dollar that we're transacting on WeChat is transacted is also in reserves with the WeChat company or Tencent company. So, Got it. So, so there was actually issues or questions around like fractional reserve banking and this idea that um, whipping electronic you know, bits around the internet may not actually line up with the cash, right, in the banks. Right, right. Um, sounds a lot like crypto. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And there's so much experiments that we could draw parallels to between and, and China and the US. Like, you know, as you've described this, it really does feel like maybe China and, and, and the greater Asia region has been dealing with digital currencies, right? They're not blockchain based, they're not cryptographically secure as we think of like crypto, but they are digital currencies, digital money. And so there's a lot of the uh, user behavior that's been learned or habitualized uh, over time um, that have trained people to do this, right? Yes, I agree. Habitually, I think if you look at the the kind of the rise of the technology conglomerates in China in the last 15 years, they came later than Facebook. You know, Alibaba was one of the largest IP, is the largest IPO I think in in Nasdaq, but it's 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 came very uh, much later than a lot of the technology waves that we saw in Silicon Valley. But people were very quick to adopt, and they make the product very easy to use. So even you know, 90 older 90 year olds, eight, you know, just older people who are usually not. Um, familiar with technology are able to use, you know, just like the way Apple is designed mm-hmm. for everyone to use ac- across the world. So I think product design wise, they really have gotten that right. Got it. And, and then let's talk a little bit about um, just the, the kind of capital controls and things that go on in China and other countries. Um, one thing that I think most Westerners are catching on to that maybe haven't paid attention to uh, the regulation and and the financial markets there is um, it's really hard to move money in and out of the country, right? And so maybe just talk a little bit about kind of what the logic there is, uh, why governments do that, um, because that's, you know, has a has a big contribution, I think, to some of the interest that the individual citizens have in crypto as well. For sure, for sure. And I think, you know, Bitcoin cryptocurrency is really attractive to Chinese people and especially in China for speculation reasons, you know, potentially to make a quick buck. Mm-hmm. And uh, the alternative to use Bitcoin uh, is to avoid capital controls, right? Mm-hmm. To take the money outside of the country. And partially uh, that's because driven, that's driven by the fact that the Chinese people do not believe in the Chinese government and they do not believe that the fiat uh, yuan will be able to stay afloat and be pegged, you know. I think uh, the yuan was taken away from its peg, I think, just a few years ago. And mm-hmm. so uh, to many folks who grew up in China, they see a lot of volatility and they also see a lot of the shadow banking in China, you know, with illegal lending activities and also just lots of um, 
you know, unreported, underreported uh, financial activities that are actually not um, um, that may be increasingly leading to a crisis in itself. So this is why people are looking to take their money out and actually you know, put it in the dollar or put it into alternative stable currency. But I think ultimately uh, the, the issue and, 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 and there was a great article that just uh, was written by Hasu, this researcher who talked about Bitcoin is a great hedge to the mm-hmm. cashless society, mm-hmm. which I totally agree. But at the same time, I think because, for example, uh, already we see that 85% of Chinese population are used to doing digital transactions on WeChat and Alipay, they don't really have an incentive to use Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. You know, Bitcoin, I think, has a great uh, attractive uh reason for one speculation and that is primarily because China is very un, uh, uh, unequal mm-hmm. in income in, there's a lot of income inequality and so you know what people uh, when they heard about cryptocurrency initially they wanted to you know make a quick buck yep right and they uh, you know people for, in the age between you know teenagers to grannies grannies were looking to uh, buy cryptocurrency to and then to later sell to the greater fool. Um, but you know, I think before uh, there was a speculation on Bitcoin, there was always always speculation on around you know Chinese A share market, which is the mainland stock market, which is really rigged also because of the kind of the very early unsophisticated establishment of the kind of institutional market. You know, if you compare the institutional market or the stock market to the US, uh, to that of the China, China has about 80% um, retail participation in these markets versus in the US it's primarily the reverse where 80% of the participants are uh, institutionals. Got it. So so my my, my argument there is that um, um, I think people are, you know, for one, people turn to cryptocurrencies for speculation, mm-hmm. but there's alternative ways to speculate as well. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing that I think that um, Bitcoin is actually uh, uh, was used for, which is to avoid capital controls, can also be, you know, went around with other types of alternative ways, right? Because before Bitcoin, there was also other ways that people got money out of the country. Absolutely. Right? There's Hong Kong that you could use, you know, as, you know, create different entities and set up different kind of establishments to really route your money that way. For sure. Well, and, and I guess one of the things is that uh, the government is trying to not only control the people, they're trying to control the uh, the money and the flow of money, um, but they're also trying to control information, right? Right. And uh, we've seen, I think, China now twice, uh, we've seen these examples where somebody has gone and put a message on the Ethereum blockchain. Right. And kind of the immutable ledger. And I think one was around the sexual uh, harassment or sexual assault case. Right. Um, so, you know, they, they didn't want to be silent. So they actually attach a message to a transaction. It gets uh, put on record and the Chinese government can't stop that right. information from being uh, publicly presented. The other was around, I think, a pharmaceutical company and something to do with uh, like some nefarious activity or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you know, kind of the overarching message is, look. This isn't just about the free flow of money or value. It's also about the free flow of information, right? right? In, in countries where Westerners don't understand that, right? I, I grew up in the United States, and the idea that you don't have freedom of speech is hard to fathom, right? right. And, and in these countries, it's actually the norm. It is the it is the default. Right. Um, maybe talk a little bit about how blockchain itself is being thought about 
uh, and then we can really jump into more of the the details of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and, and how that's uh, being looked at in, in each country. Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, going back to what you said about uh, the Chinese government being very stringent about controlling information, mm-hmm. that's their, I would say, one of the top priorities now under this new regime under Xi Jinping. Um, and you see that from the activities that you know the cyberspace administration of China is doing. They're requesting all the activity logs from Tencent and Alibaba. Used so they're to be- requesting all messaging activity from the two largest players in the market. Yes. Wow. Right. And are, is that being handed over? It is. Of course, they have to. Wow. You know, whilst they're they're facing with shutdown, mm-hmm. and you know, um, and that's something. You know, that's something we haven't seen before, even though those two companies have been existing for about 10 to 15, 20 years. Yep. And now the Chinese government realizes that these gov- these companies cannot control the information as much as they, as precisely as the way they want to, right? They want to really take these company companies as their sole pro- propaganda machines and mm-hmm. pushing through their own messages. Um, and they... Uh, they are no longer tolerating any kind of, you know, mistakes or you know, execution problems with that's happening in these companies. So yep. now I really think that the Chinese government is taking these information to, you know, control it to a whole new level. And well, well there's two parts to it, right? Because one, it sounds like I, I didn't know that uh, WeChat, Alibaba, they're all turning over information to the government, right? I mean, that would be completely ridiculous in the United States if everyone's content was being turned over. We already have issues where uh, them making requests about a single user's messaging is is kind of people are up in arms about. Imagine if the entire user base, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, But but I would argue that in China, um, the priorities of of what matters to a citizen is, you know, is income stability. mm -hmm. And then uh, secondary to that is privacy Privacy and information, uh, information, information protection. Mm -hmm. You know, I think uh, privacy is something that is very, not very much an important aspect to most Chinese people because they know that they are being monitored in China. Right. um, If you kind of look at the uh, the history of what China has done to folks who have spoken out, right? It's it's very obvious that you know you are being watched, and they have all these increasingly more monitoring tools that they're equipping themselves with in the Central Party to make sure that you will not be able to, or you sh- that you'll be discouraged from speaking out. Which I think, honestly, as a Chinese citizen, um, those things I take as well, as a putting myself in the shoe of a Chinese citizen, I think I take those things as secondary to my happiness of, you know, being able to, you know, eat good food and just have a good job. And those are the important things to a regular person, honestly. What's up with this social credit score thing? Yeah. Right? So for those that, or maybe you you tell us what is going on there. What is it and and how real is this or or how um, kind of immediate is the implementation of this? I think the implementation is being tested out. But so this quick background for folks who are not familiar with the social credit system. For many, if you've seen the episodes of Black Mirror on uh, on Netflix, there is an episode of a girl who gets rated by every one of her uh person that she interacts with you know you have a you get a rating five out of you know out of five stars you know how was my interaction with pump today i would say it's a five of course 10 out of five five, (laughs) definitely and so you know um and and you're you're you you're 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 essentially what you recognize what you're being recognized from the outside is this rating that others give you 
and the Chinese government is essentially implementing that uh, from a, from a from an institutional point point of view, where you know if you aren't able to pay your debt on time, they will give you a poor score. At, so it's essentially a cre- credit score. I would say it's just a credit score. It's like an Uber. It's like an Uber score, right? Yeah, it, it's like if you it's added all the scores the, together. Yeah, it's just not the riders giving the information. It sounds like there's some automated scoring. There's some feedback scoring. Right. It's right? probably an opaque system where there are a lot of things, and there's a yep. black box, and then you know you come out with the and score. Is it, uh, and maybe you don't know this, but is it like a number? Like, hey, you're ranked one out of 10? Or is it like a letter grade? Is it? I think it's a number grade, but okay. I'm not sure of the details. But honestly, I think it's not something that is very drastic or particularly dr- dramatic to any individual citizen who's there. They okay. probably just take it as part of this, you know, increasing uh, identity online. And then you need this almost. You know, I think actually it's, it's more like efficient that way. It's for life. Yeah, it's, it's, it's efficient, <laughs> right? Because if you combine Airbnb... T- <laughs> there you go. The, the fact and, that I just connected gamification of life to what the Chinese government doing is ridiculous because uh, I think the concerns that a lot of people have are very serious and grave in the sense of um, if this was a score that would help you, you know, get faster service at a restaurant or get access to certain government services, like that actually may be pretty interesting application of scoring technology, et cetera. Yeah. I think people's fear though is the opposite. Like they're going to say you can't, live in certain areas you actually have less rights than somebody else like do you think that the everyday citizen in china is worried about what seems the westerners are worried about or they don't they're completely you know uh, agnostic i guess to the idea that this could be used for nefarious purposes so i think uh, the chinese citizen always relies on the government to make sure that they have a stable life and that they're there there's no um kind of civil unrest so you know um and you know this has been taken pretty far for the Chinese government as a ruler to do that because if you look at Xinjiang, and there there's lots of civil unrest there, and they're putting so many police members out in Xinjiang, and you could just see police everywhere, like on every corner of the street. Mm-hmm. So so I think uh, a regular citizen just finds it to be the government's job to make sure that they are you know, they have a safe and you know safe regular you know, life where they can just go to work and you know carry on with their lives without any kind of civil unrest and this is what the government cares about the most as well because they're managing you know over a billion people yeah. right and it's i mean wild, wild. wild. yeah wild <laughs> which which i think really makes uh, which i think i have another case for why it's harder for bitcoin to succeed because china has successfully centralized over a billion dollar billion people and that's over the course of centuries right mm-hmm. if you look at chain dynasty that's when there was like a bunch of warring states and the chain dynasty really aggregated and was able to consolidate all the warring states into one country and that's happened since like the 1600s are and then gonna, now are, are they going to be able to centralize bitcoin they are not going to be able to centralize bitcoin but okay. they're they're basically kicking bitcoin out all right so let's go really deep what the hell is going on with bitcoin in china because yeah. you get all the rumors about the centralization of mining in china the chinese government controls bitcoin uh the chinese government bans it one day they accept it the next day right. one city likes it one city doesn't just what is going on with bitcoin in china yeah for sure so like i mentioned before bitcoin is primarily used for speculation okay. and then also for avoiding capital controls or escaping capital controls okay right so 
I think, and I had this really interesting conversation with Leo Weiss, who is the Bitcoin, uh, the head of the Bitcoin Association of Hong Kong, and we did a podcast as well, where he, I think, is super, you know, insightful about what's going on there as well, since he's actually local to Hong Kong, and he says that you know what China is trying to do is create this narrative of Bitcoin, where they're saying that Bitcoin. Is something that we can control, and Bitcoin is something that we can manage. And these rules that they've been kind of setting out, you know, banning ICOs, and then most recently banning all a lot, like for, uh, forcing all these different, you know, um, technology or any kind of entities to disclose their involvement with any crypto or blockchain companies, um, are all ways for them to make sure that they tell their citizens that we know what's going on, mm-hmm. we could control what's going on. You know, and I think you know they see all these OTC or over-the-counter transactions happening in WeChat. Mm-hmm. That's been happening over the course of five last five years, but they haven't done anything about it. You know, I, and I think that's and that to me tells me that these arguments for Bitcoin, which is you know decentralization, privacy, uh, private transactions, and and uh, you know and then lastly speculation, hasn't been able to cause enough of a stir for the government to worry about it. So to me, it seems like the government honestly doesn't really care that much. They actually don't are not worried that Bitcoin will disrupt the society you, that they are in now. Do you think that the Chinese government has set up mining facilities and is mining Bitcoin themselves uh, or Bitcoin Cash? And do you? And the second question is: Do you think that they've bought? crypto themselves i think they probably like folks probably buy it for fun you know as like a regular not the individual governments like the chinese the ccp has a ccp bought bitcoin and put on a balance sheet or do you think that the ccp has invested in building mining facilities and done it or do you think that's more rumors and probably unlikely that it's occurred it's very unlikely that it's occurred i think because if you look at bitmain right back then when last few years when bitmain was uh, creating these mining pools for over 50% of mining, essentially, from these aggregate pools, China didn't do anything about it. Like, they could have had the chance to really dominate Bitcoin if they wanted to, mm-hmm. honestly. And just even when there was exchanges that were setting up shop there, you know, Binance, um, CZ and He Yi, who was also the co-founder of Binance, came from OKX, and OKX was set up shop in China, mm-hmm. and it's still there, and it's still uh, you know very relatively close to where China is, because it's in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. where it's headquartered. And... Um, and they don't. The Chinese government doesn't do anything about it. You know, they could potentially really own all of that and mm-hmm. really manage and tell, say, dictate exactly what they want to do with these things. But they don't because I think they realize that it's the ideologies that's embedded within the Chinese citizens doesn't align with this, this you know, ethos of decentralization and privacy that you know Bitcoin has been preaching. So I think there's going to be an alternative coin or you know the digital version of fiat, the yuan. Um, that comes in and actually, you know, takes over and really improve people's life the way they want to. Do you think that Bitcoin can replace fiat currency in China? Um, or do you think it'll be really, really hard? It will be real. It will definitely not be in China if anywhere. You know, I think you think China is one of the hardest places for Bitcoin to take for over sure. Dominant for sure. Yeah, if you think about just the way how China has been controlling. Uh, or managing its 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 uh, its narrative, it's mostly through information, and um, and that's prevalent in you know Weibo, which is Chinese Twitter, and it's also prevalent on WeChat, where they're monitoring everything that you're doing, and and and, and you know I don't and people are seamlessly transacting in this digital yuan already with WeChat and Alipay. So why do I need Bitcoin? Only when I need to take money out of China, and if China actually grows to become a, you know first world, you know, high GDP growth country, 
like I, I will feel more comfortable even putting my money in keeping mm. it in China, right? It's mostly the inequality aspect that I find it to me where folks find it very attractive. You know, the poor people want to speculate and make money. The rich people wants to take money out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, side note, you mentioned Chinese Twitter. I'm, I'm trying to go viral on Chinese Twitter. On Weibo. I got to get an account on there yeah, and uh, figure that one out. We'll, we'll help you set that one up. Yeah, <laughs> um, let's do that. But, but speaking of, uh, of Chinese Twitter and American Twitter or Western world Twitter, um, one thing that uh, you've mentioned before that I think is a really interesting concept is this idea of Chinese or, or just Asian funds and projects trying to kind of go to war uh, to get mindshare in the Western world, right? So um, kind of this idea that more of them are coming here and stuff. Just talk a little bit about kind of why they're doing this, how are they doing it, who's doing it successfully, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Just to address the Weibo comment real quickly, and I think it's super interesting that most folks don't know, is that there are different messages being made actually on Weibo on the Chinese side versus on what's made on the U.S. side. So, for example, in marketing between Tron in the U.S. side and the China side, you know, very different messages. And even when you interview, when you see interviews of CZ and Hei on Chinese and English, they're very different content. So I translate why, why those for they? folks. Wait, why, why are they different? Because I think people, the interviewers ask different questions. Okay. And they're actually usually more pinpointed questions and direct questions to CZ and Hei. And, and they also, I think, give a lot more access to some of these folks more so than the US uh, interviewers. So I find that super fascinating. And some, that's something that people should not ignore because then you always have this information arbitrage that people could take advantage of when you know more, uh, you know, more than one languages. So people in the US or the Western world may actually be getting better access and know more from the mouth of CZ, Justin Sun, et cetera, because they're they're interacting with Western reporters and media in a different way right. than they are with Asian. Right. Wow. Right. Yeah. I think that you could take a look at some of our translations okay. on our website where we really highlight, you know, here are the things that CZ says in Chinese. He's mentioned this like never in English. Mm -hmm. So so here's what he said in Chinese. And it's really interesting and useful for folks, you know, now that we're in crypto, because really what CZ says affects everyone. Mm -hmm. Right. And then to answer your second question about kind of folks coming from the East in the, in the funds and um um, the, from the funds and the projects coming to the West. I don't think they're necessarily coming with an antagonistic kind of intentions. You know, if we look at Tron, they're entering the U.S. with a big conference they set up in San Francisco with Kobe Bryant. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, that, that unfortunately didn't cost too much stir because we're in a bear market. But there was Kobe Bryant, right? And, um, and if you look at... Uh, Funds, you know, we see Hashed, for example, the largest fund in Korea with all their partners now setting their eyes in the U.S. because they recognize that the technology here are second to none. You know, there won't be as many investments they can make in Korea or anywhere in Asia as a result. So uh, you will see this trend in this um, ongoing bear market that, you know, funds who are really looking to invest in technology, who are really looking for returns, are coming to the U.S. for it because um, that's, you know, especially Silicon Valley, I'd say. And then for the projects, you know, the ongoing, um, they, they also are flooding here because um, I think, for one, you know, if you look at Tron, they already dominate the China. They have a mm -hmm. great marketing machine there. And the next big market is the U.S. You know, you could look at argue that a lot of the countries in Asia is a big market, but they're definitely not as big as the U.S. So, OK, so here's what I want to understand. Let, let's talk about Tron for a second. And I don't care about the technology, the coin. Also, yeah. I want to talk about Tron, the marketing machine. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, 
Justin Sun seems to have come out of nowhere, built this massive online following. Uh, it's very apparent to me here in the West that he has um, an, a Western world audience and a Eastern world audience. Um, from what you're telling me, it sounds like he's probably talking differently to each one of those audiences. And it just feels like it's this massive machine on a global scale. Where do the Eastern projects and, and companies learn this? How do they go about building this? Like, like it's fascinating when you look at it from a pure marketing standpoint of how coming from a piece of the world that we don't even speak their language, right, in the Western world. Yeah. And for them to permeate into the Western world culture and, and communication products, how does that happen? Right. Right. That's a great question. And I think, you know, just thinking about the backdrop of, you know, the countries between U.S. and China um, and gen the general population of folks who understand crypto within these countries, uh, China and the, the folks in Asia generally understand what's going on crypto in Asia, in, in Asia as well as the U.S. You know, they have an eye, they keep an eye up going on that's, that's going on with what's going on in the U.S. And but in the U.S., most people, you know, for example, Twitter is very U.S. centric, unfortunately. I, I know that you. There's a lot of folks of you who are coming from different places, but I think it's a very like crypto Twitter is very U.S. centric. Um, you know, if you go to Weibo, it's obviously different. It's Chinese centric, and 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 the fact that and, and just kind of knowing that crypto is global and in the past China has always looked to the U.S. for technology developments for you know in, to Silicon Valley for for these innovations. This is happening now, and I think Tron is able to do that by buying BitTorrent. Mm. You know, by having a legitimate, a legitimate company setting up, you know, in the U.S., who could speak on behalf of it, makes this branding better, <laughs> right? And then, then once you issue a token based on top of that platform, then then everyone gets a share of it, yep. right? And especially if you continue to pump that thing too. It, it, it's basically it, what it sounds like is the marketing is really understanding American culture, understanding incentives, uh, and really tapping into how to uh, insert yourself into the conversation in a way that you know will resonate in that culture. Yeah, right? and I think it's hustling, and it's also that they have a lot of money. Yep. Yeah. Having yeah, yeah. a lot of money will help you a lot through this bear market. But, you know, it's not just Tron. I think you know, uh, looking at it from an opposite end, there's a project uh, I'm a consultant with Tezos. They are you know setting up four foundations in Asia: the one in Hong Kong, one in Korea, one in Japan, one in Singapore, Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. and they have lo localized all these different communities to build on top of Tezos and to form partnerships with universities there to work with professors to build on, you know, Camel and to kind of foster this innovation. For and so sure. that's happening both sides, you know. But I think uh, what I see from the the Western projects tend to be more, you know, focused on the long term. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I saw a picture of, um, I think it was Justin Sun, Kobe Bryant, and it might have been Crypto Ron. Uh, and I just remember saying to myself, we went from like ETH giveaways on Twitter to this, right? Like, <laughs> like how, how did these three people from three so different walks of life all right. come together at a conference in San Francisco to talk about magic internet money? Yeah, right? it, was, yeah. it was just, it was incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you have money and then, you know, we're in a bear market, you, know, <laughs> you, you, <go> <laughs> you can get a crowd very easily. <laughs> um, all right, one minute on Bitmain. Uh, recent news uh, came out that um, they took some pretty heavy losses in Q3. They probably took the same or greater losses in Q4. Uh, what's the general sentiment in Asia? Uh, around Bitmain and kind of the, the mining empire that they built previously? I think Bitmain, 
I've so I I'm a TechCrunch contributor as well, and I wrote I've written extensively about Bitmain before, and I think. You know, in the last year, they really have grown from you know 1,500 people to 3,000 employees, and it was just they're really banking on this bull market to fulfill itself, and mm-hmm. you know take this advantage to IPO. But I think they really missed that opportunity, and you know Timing. the bear market really fell, yeah, fell on them. Um, I think you know Jihan, there's there's news of him stepping down as well as Mike Rijang, which is the other co-founder, and I believe that, and I think you know. It's it's definitely hard on him because he's really built the company from the ground up with Micri, and uh, now you know they're bet on Bitcoin Cash. You know that's really funny because I always wonder you know if the government really cared about big Bitcoin. You know why would wouldn't they kind of try to stir Jihan towards you know focusing on Bitcoin instead of Mm -hmm. Bitcoin Cash? Like why? Why the huge bet on Bitcoin Cash? It's it's, to, to me it felt like an ego decision. That's an interesting take. Yeah. I don't know the answer. But I don't know I, the answer I, I think there's a lot of people who would agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm sure Jihan will continue to be in this space and we'll hear more about him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody who's built these these large companies very quickly, they've got the skill set, right? They, they yeah. kind of got lightning in a bottle. Right, right. Um, and so we'll see what they do. It's always ironic because he, I don't know if you heard of him, about him, how he, uh, about his story of how he started Bitmain, which was that he was the first translator of Bitcoin, white paper, and, uh, and he t- translated it into Chinese. And he really believed in Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. But then the, the more I thought about it now, the more I'm like, well, if you decided that you supported Bitcoin, then why were you trying to monetize through Bitcoin mining machines and also creating these mining pools, which essentially centralized mm-hmm. Bitcoin, right? Which it, 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 to me, maybe this is just like a random thought that I had, but happy to hear what you guys have think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, trust me, there will be people who definitely tweet at both of us and let us know. Um, all right, so uh, rapid fire, three questions. What's the most important company in crypto in Asia? Um, I don't know how to how to say, um, I don't know how to decide what's important. I would say the companies that have the most money will be the ones who will continue to run. And so that would be Tron, that would be EOS, that would be Binance. Um, wow, Tron, EOS, and Binance. I did not expect any of those three to be on the list. Well, they have a I lot also, of money. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's... that's, that's money that's, runs that's, the world. Running, money really runs the world, One especially in crypto. Bitcoin will run the world, but we'll stick with money for the moment. <laughs> I agree with that, too. I agree. <laughs> Bitcoin outside of China, I agree. All right, yeah. awesome. Uh, <laughs> what is the most important book you've ever read? Um... I'm going to follow CZ and see Sapiens. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> CZ setting a good bar there. You guys check out his books. Um, I actually just recently read this book uh, called Billion Dollar Whales. Oh, it's fantastic. It's great, right? It's, that is a great pick. It's a very good book. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I think it's fascinating. And it's talking, uh, so Billion Dollar Whales is uh, talks about this huge um, scheme made by essentially a 27-year-old um who took a billion dollars from the Malaysian pension fund. Oh, I think he took more than that. Oh, yeah, yeah J- he took more J- than J. Lo that. is, uh, it's the uh, 1MDB scandal with uh, Goldman Sachs. A uh, guy, 27-year-old in Malaysia, literally just swiped billions, I think. Uh, my, you, what's your favorite fact from the movie? And then I'll tell you mine. Oh, there's so many. Oh. So the fact that he's in China now. <laughs> okay, all right. So that is crazy. <laughs> that they can't crazy, find right? him. He's yeah, in China exactly. somewhere. <laughs> Mine was that he took some of the uh, proceeds from his scheme and he financed the Wolf of Wall Street movie. Oh, right, right, right. Of course. Exactly. <laughs> I don't think people, people are like, wait a minute. That's pretty crazy. Oh, yeah. You guys should definitely read it. It's, it's, a, it's a global story. And, you know, what, what I drew from that was like, oh, wait. So... 
Jolo essentially befriended a lot of celebrities in the valley to gain his recognition from the Saudi money and also from the Malaysians. And it sounds like Tron is also befriending Kobe Bryant and is releasing all these partnerships with celebrities in the U.S. for doing the same thing. Okay, anyway. That's, that's, a, that's a very interesting correlation there. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That was just a uh-huh. random parallel. Um, uh, before I end, I always let somebody else ask me a question. But we got to talk about aliens first. Uh, what are the odds that they exist? Oh, man. Uh, what, what do you think? Oh, like 99.9%. Yeah, like... I, I would be I think there's a greater chance of aliens existing than Bitcoin becoming the global reserve currency. And I think there's a very high percent chance that Bitcoin will become the global reserve currency. Wow. Yeah. Like I, I like it, it's just math, right? In terms of probability. How big the galaxies are, right? And you kind of go through it. Uh, the likelihood of how much progress we've made already in terms of finding certain conditions where life could exist and could uh-huh. not exist, how many planets there are, right? It's just there's so much we don't know, uh, and there is such a low probability that we are the only planet in the entire universe that got lucky enough to have life. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. We'll that, see. You didn't answer the question, though. What, what do you think? I haven't thought of too extensively, unfortunately, but I I see your I see your point. Over or under fifty percent. She wants to I say, say under, under so bad. Under, <laughs> under, guys, what do you think? Under. All right, under. Am 50%. I the only one who said under? No, there's some people who. Josh Brown, he'll he'll always get uh, memorialized for saying that ghosts are more real than aliens, which is a ridiculous statement. But uh, shout out Josh Brown. <laughs> nice. Um, all right, what one question do you have for me? Well, what's your favorite company right now? Uh, uh, my favorite company is Morgan Creek. <laughs> oh, man, I got to be uh, more specific. No, I, uh, so if you ask the most important company, um, and I've talked about this a, a bunch on the podcast, but uh, I think it's probably Facebook. Um, and the reason why I think it's the most important is whether they are successful or not with whatever they release, they are likely to have the highest number of people experience blockchain and crypto immediately right i agree with that so if they launch a 200 million people in india right the stable coin rumor that's going around oh no it's definitely gonna happen 200 million people just experienced blockchain and crypto that's more than all crypto users combined for the last 10 years right right right. i I agree with that totally and i think that's something similarly that's happening in china as well where wechat and tencent will tencent and alibaba would release some kind of their form blockchain and bam you have a billion point five people guys don't mess it up (laughs) yeah that's gonna be a war between i mean i had this conversation with lily liu who is also a very smart lady uh based out of california you know i think the war in in the end is going to be bitcoin versus facebook versus uh china Um, i'm holding out that uh Facebook, Alibaba, Tencent, if they just adopt Bitcoin and Jack Dorsey, right, with Twitter, like yeah. if they all just start pushing it as the native currency on the Internet, uh, it would be pretty incredible. I think the odds are very unlikely, though. Yes, I agree. Everyone will be pushing for their own coin, unfortunately. And I think Apple is exploring that, too. So that's a, that's a great thing, I think, to end with. <laughs> awesome. All yeah. right. Thank you so much for doing this. We're going to have to do this more regularly because I think you've got uh, pretty interesting insights in, uh, in Asia and China. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. 
One more word from our sponsor, BlockFi. Their new interest account allows you to securely deposit your Bitcoin or Ether at BlockFi and receive 6% annual interest paid monthly in cryptocurrency. This rate actually compounds, so you receive a 6.2% APY, which is very attractive given the alternatives. So you can actually take your Bitcoin, you can deposit it with BlockFi and get paid an interest rate of 6% in return. Go check out BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP to sign up and start earning interest on your crypto today. Hey everyone, POMP here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.